I'm your host, Van Langham, Global Head of Demand Gen at Cognizant, and I'm delighted to be joined by Andre, Director of Marketing at PandaDoc. So welcome. I've been very excited to chat to you. Thank you for having me. You are welcome. Um, I did have a scripted question, but we were just chatting before, so I kind of want to continue on that thread. So bit of context. Um, I think I think for me, like this this podcast is is very much to deep dive this kind of idea that we're as marketers, we're so used to creating these fantasy funnels. We think the buyer journey is like very linear. So we have this concept that I know if someone's opened our emails, followed us on LinkedIn, and suddenly they're ready to buy. We know this kind of like isn't the case, but I feel this mindset is so deeply embedded into like most companies. It's hard to kind of like break away from that process almost and almost like think about the customer themselves, not like what we want them to do. Um, and I suppose just like we would, we were just kind of riffing a little bit, but I suppose in your experience, like I think you were saying it's very much like the doing that's the focus, not kind of like the why we're doing something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with aligning, um, you know, company company goals to the interests of the customer, right? And and typically that's not how things go. Company goals are aligned to company goals, right? We want to grow by X percent this year. We have these targets that we need to hit. Um, we're backed by VCs. This is the expectation. Uh, they need to have a return on their investment. So alignment around interests then become far more internal than external with the customer base, right? Um, and it's really actually really sad because when you talk to most founders, especially in the early stages of their businesses, they're deeply passionate about solving um, problems for customers. Like this is what they obsess over. This is why they wake up and do what they do every single day and endure the blood, sweat, and tears that comes with early stage startup life, right? So as companies grow, as companies scale, if it's not something that could be documented or put in a manual or process, then it's not seen as repeatable, predictable, scalable, teachable. Um, so we start creating distance from the why, the why do we do what we do? Um, and, and I think that there needs to be a healthy balance between growing a business and staying true to not just the internal mission and vision of the organization, but also the mission statement as it applies to the problems you're trying to solve for your customers. Yes, absolutely. Agreed. And I think that I've definitely worked um, at companies in the past where that has certainly got lost sort of like driving that own internal agenda just um even I think even if you go really like zoom like zoom in and like really tactically even on a campaign level like even where kind of like the message that we're putting out to the actions that we're choosing to take it almost like we do it because it's like aligns with the tech stack we currently have in place because that's what we always do or we're gonna like reach out to our target audience in this way because it's the easiest way to measure it like we would like I remember back in the day it was like well, we could put video out there but way back when it was very hard to track engagement there like we didn't have like metrics and platform on LinkedIn that we could do that with so it was more like let's just send an email because then at least we'll know if we if they opened it right so it's almost like by driving that own your own agenda like you're completely not even serving your audience and your like potential like new customers in the way that they want to be served which is like and it's it's funny because like I would 
at the time, if you'd asked me if I was customer centric and I was putting the customer first, like me 10 years ago, I probably would be like, yeah, like, absolutely. Like, of course, like this, because I would say to you, I am because these are their pain points. But it's like, it's probably pain points that either I'd arrived at the company and someone had told me that's what my key persona's pain points were, or I decided that's like what the pain points were or like the, you know, what the issue that I needed to be solving. And I think it's like, it all becomes like, I don't know like how to say it in a different way, but it's all becomes either made up or like super surface level, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I suppose like what I really wanted to dig into with you is like, how do you go beyond that? So so I could say my team are customer centric because they listen to gong calls, but then often we write those notes in a document and then that's the end. Like how do how do you like? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think I have a bit of a benefit as a marketer because I, I started my career in sales. Um, mm-hmm. I moved into client delivery and support. So I was really then um, responsible for fulfilling a promise made. And it really illuminated the disconnect even after a transaction between what the expectations you know set were and what the reality actually looks like for the client. So yeah. I think it really starts with having that empathetic mindset, right? So gong calls are great. And I still actively listen to gong calls, sales calls. I still do surveys and those are wonderful, but you're really only getting a picture sort of like at the last mile of the buyer's journey then. So they've already made a series of decisions that help them arrive to that conversation. And we know today that the buyer's journey not being linear, they're going to do a lot of their homework. They're going to do a lot of their research. They're going to vet out your solution. 80% of that journey is not involved in a conversation with you, right? So they're gathering those inputs. They're gathering that education somewhere else. It might be through communities. It's most certainly through their trusted word of mouth. And then, of course, the content that you as a company are, are, are putting out into, um, into the world to enable them with the decision, right? So having that mindset that when you listen to a customer call through a, a, a buyer call through Gong is, is helpful, but you're really only getting a narrow set of data and context there. So really, um, you know, and there's a lot of ways you can kind of collect this type of qualitative research, but it really is the most meaningful way is going to be one-on-one conversations with your ICP. Mm -hmm. And I think about it in two dimensions. I think number one, existing customers who are power users of your, of your solution, right? You're going to get a lot of great insights there. Um, but I also think that there's another dimension and another segment, if you will, of people to have these types of one-on-one conversations with. And these are people who are not in a buying cycle, but they match all of the, you know, firmographic data that, that is your ICP today, right? Why do you want to talk to people who are not in a buying cycle? You're going to get a unique set of insights from somebody who, you know, is may be perfectly happy with their old coffee machine versus somebody who just decided to purchase your brand new high-tech coffee maker, right? You're going to get a different set of insights. You're going to understand, especially for those people who are potentially either problem unaware, or they might be aware of a problem, but they're 
passive about it. There, they, there hasn't been a catalyst in their job that forces them to seek out a solution like yours. Those types of insights are going to be very, very powerful because we realize then very quickly as marketers that like, okay, a lot of what we put out there, especially for somebody that's not looking, it's not going to stick. So we also have to find a way to engage with that segment. And at any given time, as we've probably all referenced, 95% of our addressable market is not in a buying cycle. So if 95% of the time they're not in a buying cycle, that's a huge pool of people that we can also get very valuable feedback in terms of how do they navigate through their job functions? What, what is the what is the economic climate of their industry? Where do they go to seek out information to up-level themselves in their job? What are their motivations? Because again, they haven't had that catalyst that actually dove them into the discovery process of searching for a solution like ours. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, and it's kind of like, what, what would that trigger point be or, or what leads up to that kind of like trigger point? Because it's, exactly. yeah, it's interesting. And I, I suppose that kind of, kind of touches on the, like the, the B2B decision or buying um, decision in terms of in B2C, like we always say it's very emotional. And then I've listened or seen a few posts on LinkedIn recently that's talking about, well, for B2B, it's not emotional, like it's um, it's a rational decision. And that's like why people are making it. But I know you think the opposite. I know we, I've listened to like some of your talks before and it would just be good to kind of like talk through that because I, I'm a big believer in that like B2C, B2B, like very much the same, like we're all human, like we're always, always, always making these like decisions. But it's so funny how like they are still treated as completely separate. Totally. Yeah. I'll, let's talk about B2B versus B2C and then talk about how emotions play into yeah. buying decisions. Because I think they're, they're, they're really interconnected, you know, those two concepts. So the dichotomy between B2B and B2C, I think it's a false dichotomy, right? Um, in B2C, we're marketing to a person. In B2B, we're marketing to a committee. <laughs> but a committee is just made up of a group of individuals, right? And each set of individuals has their own unique motivations, struggles, incentives, biases, right? So by abstracting the individual into a committee, the way we think about marketing becomes diluted because we're then speaking to everyone while not really saying anything specific to anyone, mm -hmm. right? So... Secondly, I also think it has to do with motivations, right? So when you're building a product, you're telling a story, you're creating an experience for a consumer, back to that B2C, to, B to there's this sort of like immediate impact, right? So you think about consumer purchases, not all of them, um, you know, but many consumer purchases are coming from a place of pleasure, right? Like they're seeking to buy something because it makes them feel good. You don't need the newest iPhone but you're going to buy the newest iPhone because it's going to make you feel a certain way. Right. Um, you know, and in B2B, most purchase decisions are coming from a place of pain, right? Like I need to buy a solution to fix a problem that I'm currently experiencing in my job or in my business. Right. Um, and because these individuals are gathering consent from their committee, there's a greater degree of perhaps like risk aversion that plays into the purchase decision. It's really a funny juxtaposition. Like they're actually spending somebody else's money, but they're more afraid of making the wrong decision. 
Yes. Versus if they were to spend their own money and make the wrong decision. And there's like an immediate personal financial detriment to that. So yeah, it's, it's the company's money for sure. Psychology is such a fascinating thing, right? So, um, but in my opinion, where, where B2B marketing really gets it wrong is it misses on the opportunity to create a pleasurable experience while focusing on the pain that the buyer is trying to solve. Right. So what buyers end up getting in B2B is a painful experience trying to buy something to solve for a pain that they really wish they didn't even have in the first place. Yes. And then usually the and then usually the buying process is not aligned to the buyer, but aligned to how the the business like wants you to buy. So even that buying process becomes painful because you have to jump through like three or four different hoops before you get the demo because information needs to be gathered at all these different stages so it's actually funny because yeah it's always like the 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 pain that they don't want to solve but then when they go to solve that pain that buying process can then also be very like uninspiring and actually quite painful right and i'll just bookmark something right there emotions are being felt in that process in that experience right now i have to go to procurement i gotta get things looked at by my it team terrible, right? I hate this. Please, please end this process for me. But buyers today in B2B have more options than ever before, right? And most software categories, I mean, we could even say now with generative AI, right? They're, they're quickly becoming infiltrated. There's dozens of solutions that will use AI to you know, edit your videos or create landing pages for you, right? So there's this, you know, there's this sort of saturation that is occurring in numerous categories. And the differences between most solutions within a category are going to be virtually immaterial, other than maybe pricing, right? So at the end of the day, there's not very, there's not many really, truly, remarkably innovative products in the market, right? Um, And I think that scares a lot of B2B marketers. But if you come from the background of direct-to-consumer, B2C, this playing playing field is very familiar to you. I mean, how many fashion apparel companies are there? How many bottled water companies are there? How many auto manufacturers are there? Electronic uh, goods, right? Like there's so many types of products and companies and subsets. So a lot of the B2C world has had a lot of experience figuring out how to do a better job engaging with the right people and differentiating themselves through pricing, through packaging, through distribution, through promotions, services, and more, right? So the problem in B2B is not that there's too many solutions. It's that everyone is basically using the same playbook doing the same things to try to reach the same pool of buyers. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, going back to this question of like, well, aren't all these purchase decisions rational? You know, no, not really. Because again, they're going through this painful experience, you know, doing something that they don't really even want to do, but it's a necessity for their job. We're not making it easy on them. So what are they going to revert to? They're going to revert to the people that they know and trust, the brands that they recognize and respect. And they're going to start there with making some degree of not necessarily a purchase decision, but trying to reduce 
the number of options they're willing to explore within a category, right? And I think there's a, um, you know, University of California, Berkeley has done some really interesting studies um, over many decades now on, on when you ask people, you know, who rate themselves as being, are you emotionally driven or are you more analytically driven? Most of the people they found through their studies that rate themselves as being very analytical tend to be more emotional given the context of what they're experiencing in their life, right? So I think our perception of ourselves is different than sometimes how we behave, right? Um, and we could even talk about like people who claim to be data-driven, but then at the same time, you can slice and dice data to tell any type of story you want it yeah. to tell, right? So you can kind of go in there with a confirmation bias. And, you know, when you see that set of data, despite the fact that it's actually telling you something different, you're going to see what you want to see in there. Exactly. So I think understanding that, look, it's not that logic doesn't play a role in the purchase decision. It absolutely does. Um, I think it's about understanding where in the purchase cycle it plays a decision. If it's a moment of pain, you're going to, you, you, you can rely on some degree of emotions being involved in that decision-making process. Um, you know, so that's why when you think about even this like fantasy funnel concept, which I love, by the way, um, you know, when people first interact with your brand, you know, they're, they're, they're coming in, not necessarily looking at you with a really rational point of view. They're coming at you because they heard about you from a friend or someone that they respect reshared a video that you posted or some creative ad. Again, there's no purchase intent there, but you're now on their radar, right? And they felt something when they first saw you. That's why companies in direct-to-consumer and B2C spend literally millions and millions of dollars on brand advertising, on branding. They spend a lot of time testing the psychology of colors, the psychology of words. And this is all the stuff that they're doing before you might be 16, 24 months away from purchasing one of their products, but they're already emotionally priming the market to have some degree of awareness and more importantly, association with who they are as a company. Yeah. And it's definitely, it's, um, I think like since we've made this switch, like it really rings true. Like since we've sort of got out of a, what we call it like our lead gen hamster wheel, but, and focus more on this, like not collecting leads to, you know, from eBooks and saying, okay, great. Um, we'll send, we'll put these leads down in a nurture and I'm sure they'll be ready to buy in three clicks time. Like actually the, the whole like demand gen approach, like it's, it's so different now in the sense like from when I was working in marketing, like way back when, when I started out, because for demand gen, it's like, we get, we now get emails from people like, oh, we've been attending, like, it's exactly how we made people feel, right? We attended a webinar. We didn't have to put our details in. Um, it was super tactical. We learned a ton of things. And we got a really nice email afterwards of us saying, thanks, here's some more resources. And here's some resources that you don't actually have to sign up for either, because they're also ungated. I mean, that's just like, a small example, but even just changing the way in which we operate in that way, which is not a big lift. It's just like ungating stuff, right? It wasn't like the biggest shift. Um, even just doing that, like we know now that like in, I don't know, as you said, like 
three months time, 12 months time, if companies are looking for a data provider, like it's more likely will be top of mind because we've created this experience and we've added value. So we've created this like value loop and we hope to consistently deliver value for all of these prospects until they are ready to buy and in market. And I just think that like, even that just mindset shift has made a massive difference to us. And it's actually been more enjoyable to market in that way, right? Because it's like, it's exactly how I would want to be marketed to. Right. Yeah. I think um, customer centric marketing really requires us to put ourselves in the shoes of our customers at Mm -hmm. the end of the day, right? Like really live and experience um, the world as they do for a period of time to to develop that empathy, to develop the context. Um, You know, one of the things that we've done at Pandadoc that I think has been really remarkable and insightful um, was we started a secret shopper program, right? Where we put ourselves in the shoes of our customers and actually audited the entire customer journey. And this was a cross-functional initiative, you know, so it was sponsored by marketing product and customer success leadership. Okay. And we all sat together and we said, okay, we're going to spend a quarter collecting as much information as possible about what our customers experience. We had internally already mapped a customer journey. And with all the handoffs, with the email sequences, with the onboarding programs, et cetera, et cetera. How much did that actually match what our customers experienced, right? That's what we were trying to understand. And we found so many disconnects. Really? and, And some of them were like really low hanging fruit things. Like when a customer, what, excuse me, when a prospect converted into a customer, like, were they still getting certain emails from HubSpot um, versus Sales Loft? Were they taken out of a certain database so they weren't getting hit twice with maybe you know two messages that kind of contradicted one another? Little things like that were certain things that we were trying to pay attention to. Other things were also just sort of like, what does that handoff process look like once they're like, hey, great, I, I'm ready to sign a contract and buy Pandadoc. How long did the process take? How effortless was it for the customer? How much time did it take to actually meet the onboarding specialist and the customer success manager? What expectations were set in those onboarding calls? How many different handoffs were there? All of these things we were tracking and we saw so many opportunities for improvement. Because again, at the end of the day, you know, and I think a lot about this as a brand strategist is, from that very first touch somebody has with your brand, we're making a promise. And the brand is not really the promise. The brand is the reputation. It's like, what does the buyer or customer actually think about you and say about you when you're not around? So we make a promise. Are we actually delivering on that promise through the entire buying experience? And oftentimes, ourselves included, we found ourselves coming short of that process of, of that promise that we're making. Our promise to small and medium sized business owners is we're here to eliminate bureaucracy in your day to day work so you can focus on what's most important. But we found through our secret shopper program, there was actually some unnecessary bureaucracy that we were <laughs> adding that was interfering with their purchase decision, with the customer journey and ultimately with how they 
became they began experiencing our product right in terms of like actually getting everybody on their team on board so we did this about two years ago and now it's like an always-on program that we refresh quarterly but it's something that is tremendously powerful because again when you put yourself in the shoes of your customers the level of empathy that you gain for the bullshit you put them through just, just <laughs> it's it's incredible you know and there's nothing like it there, you can't get that from a gong call you can't get that no. from an nps you can't get that from a survey it's like a yeah it's like a on paper versus in practice isn't it like it all looks mm -hmm. perfect everything's a neat process flow chart but actually in practice it's Unless you do it, it's like you never know whether it's one too many steps or like the delay is too long or as you, you know, as you as you said. So, yeah, it's, um, it's super interesting. And also, again, like as always, which is, is difficult to do, it's like getting buy in from different departments to collaborate in that way and like have that collaboration piece, which um, which can always be like a little bit of a pain. But I would say it's definitely necessary for sure. Um, yeah, it's, it's this is not like. To me, this is not a marketing thing. This is like an organization. This is everyone, you know? So at the end of the day, of course, I as a marketer want to make sure that I have direct interface with the customer and I have the opportunity to speak with them about their experience. But there's so many other people involved in that process, right? So that's why I think, I mean, it sounds cliche to say it, but it really leadership needs to be a hundred percent bought in to customer experience and many companies don't even have that defined they yeah. don't even really if you ask a company you know what is the promise you're delivering to your customers and how are you measuring excellence you're gonna either get no answer or you're gonna get a series of answers that don't really make a whole lot of sense. They're not unified because you talk to marketing, they're going to say one thing. You talk to sales, yeah. they're going to say something else. You talk to product, they're going to say something else, right? So that's why it really needs to start, I think, at the leadership level and bring that into the culture. That's the only way you're going to really have um, this unified and consistent, defined measure of success for what, what does great mean for us? Yeah, like and collectively, I like that you said that because I think we that we've we've fallen short at times when we've we've almost been doing the same thing, but it's it's like you you made a reference to it earlier. You're kind of doing everything and nothing, so it's like you know, our marketing are talking to customers, or like demand gen talking to customers, but oh, product marketing are also talking to customers, but n no sync. And it's like, but what are we actually what are we achieving by doing that, right? And how are we going to like implement that and and move that forward? And I think it is that collectiveness that does help. Um, on that note, just thinking very tactically about like us as a company and other companies out there, if we want to, if we want to do this like customer piece well, and I mean by that, I mean deeply understanding the customer well, um, and yes, gone calls can be this element, um, that, that plays a part in, in the process. But if I was, um, just speaking very tactically, if I was doing, conducting a customer interview, um, I can already know now that I'm thinking of like questions that I'd ask. There'd be a certain amount of bias from that because I already have these assumptions on like my persona and like how how the um, how that persona like feels about cognizant and and maybe like what their pain points are. Like, what would your advice be of like trying to go in and, and not um, 
ask the right questions, not not try and sort of go in with your own agenda and, and get them to say what you want them to say, because then I feel it becomes like a tick boxing exercise, like confirmed, that's exactly what I'm already doing. And then it gets boxed off and then you never look at it again. And I just really wanted like, just to get that advice on how can we be better during this interview process? Yeah, um, it's a great question, you know, and I, I think my advice to anybody who wants to extract as much value as possible when they're interviewing customers is think like a journalist, okay? Like your single focus should be to uncover truth. It's not about validating your own biases. It's about uncovering truth. Truth <laughs> as is perceived and expressed by the person you're talking to, right? So on a tactical level, you know, I, I typically try to organize my customer interviews in clusters. So I'll have two, three days in a row where I have interviews upwards of 12 scheduled. So I'm pretty much clearing my calendar. This is not something that I'm just doing on the side when I have 45 minutes or an hour free. This is a deliberate, this is a deliberate function and mindset that I try to put myself in. So I'm not distracted from what I'm trying to uncover, which is the truth, right? And and when you also, the other advantage to clustering interviews is you can start developing patterns really quickly. You recognize those patterns. Like if you start hearing similar things after the third or fourth interview, it gives you insights, right? That by that fifth interview, sixth interview, you might even change the question a little bit to go a little deeper. Or because you're hearing a pattern, try to then see if it truly is a pattern or if it's coincidence by asking that same question then from a different angle. Um, I typically try to ask for an hour of time, sometimes a little bit more um, great interviews should feel like conversations. So I'm not interrogating them. I'm not, my objective is not necessarily to get answers to all 25 questions or 20 questions that I've drafted. You know, sometimes the best interviews I've had, I've only gone through maybe like four questions, but we went so deep and I learned so much about the way they think, the way they speak, what their fears and motivations are, that it was more than sufficient to give me what I need to feel like I got a lot of value out of that discussion. So it's quality over quantity, even though you are still asking for about an hour of their time. And also the other reason why I like to ask for a little bit more time is because the first 15, 20 minutes of the conversation, they're just kind of opening up, right? So if all I've scheduled is 30 minutes and I'm starting to get somewhere really good in the last five, well, well, then I feel like I've missed out on an opportunity and I don't want to bother them by going and asking for more time. So I'd rather ask for more upfront so I'm allowed to keep the conversation as organic and personable as possible. And again, with the mindset that I don't need answers to all 25 questions. I have 10 other interviews lined up, right? So like, I'm not expecting you, Fran, to give me everything I need, right? It's, it's looking at it from the perspective that I just hope to go in depth with the areas that you're leaning into. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of my, my, both on the mindset side and some of the tactical side, when I set up these interviews, how I like to structure them. And again, keeping them really, really conversational. You know, mm -hmm. we've talked about this in the past before also making them feel 
valuable and special. Customers are happy to talk, especially the power users. They love talking about the thing, right? Because this yeah. is this it, they if they didn't love it, they wouldn't be a power user, right? So they live and breathe um, the solution and they deeply understand the problem in ways that I never could, right? So um, I think there's a lot to be just said about giving somebody the space to be really authentic, not trying to force a certain set of answers out of them. And then also ask them why, you know, we've heard in, you know, the five whys, right? So um, you'll rarely find gold on the first answer to a question, you know, either because they're not really warmed up to you or it's so surface level that you can't extract anything really meaningful, right? So as an example, if they begin to share about a certain pain that they're dealing with an internal process within their organization, don't take it at face value. Try to understand if that's something that's pervasive within their industry, if it's something that's unique to their company or something that's maybe even common in their role. Just try to dig a little bit deeper and let them guide the conversation. Because again, if I'm forcing all the things out of you, then you're not going to open up to me in those types of ways, right? I'm going to let you be the lead in this dance. Yeah. And then again, as he said, like, it makes so much sense, like not just trying to drive your own agenda to kind of get those boxes checked off. Um, and and when, I guess, just thinking on that, so when, so you have like your cluster of interviews and um, typically, so you're going to ask for an hour, you're going to make it conversational. And then when, when this is like, when you get to, maybe you've done 10, 12 interviews, right? What What happens then in terms of like, how would you then, communicate those findings or action them or like what what is what does the process look like because I think a pain that I have sometimes is we get the information but then it's like what do you know what do you do with it now you've got it yeah absolutely um so much great information dies in a google doc oh my gosh, <laughs> you know I have so many <laughs> <laughs> me too me too it's it's a graveyard in my drive folder yes. um so a lot of it has to do with two pieces, right? I mean, if your organization is on board and unified with the value of customer-centric programs, customer experience, you typically will then have a forum and a consistent platform to share your unique findings. I like to share conversations like the interviews. I record all the interviews and I like to share the raw footage with them. And then I usually put together through Loom like a, a seven minute summary, like my own takeaway and some of the things that I learned. And then I also include those findings as well in a document. But again, you have like the distribution of it is raw, uh, the, 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 the raw conversation, the consolidated highlights, and then the analysis, which is typically written. And then I make sure, you know, when it comes to quarterly planning, that as we're kind of thinking about campaigns, as we're thinking about narratives that we want to test in the market, um, as we're thinking about specific industries or verticals that we want to we want to focus on, that's the perfect opportunity to resurface these conversations, bring them to your sales leaders, right? Bring them to your customer success teams and really use them as a way, use those other opportunities three months out to amplify the work that you had done. Um, if you just put it out in Slack, say, hey, I did all this stuff. Here it is. <laughs> Chances are very, very high that it will be forgotten about like next week. 
you know? Um, and then also, I think within marketing, we have a lot of opportunity to think holistically, you know, um, about how we actually utilize these insights. So specifically for any type of research that you conduct for, for you know, um, people that are not necessarily in a buying cycle, but they match your ICP, those conversations make for really great ideas for top of funnel, right? Because again, these are, these are people that are not actively searching for your solution. So the type of messaging that you craft, the, tap, the type of campaigns that you run at the top of the funnel can really be inspired to seek out that 95% of your addressable market that's not searching for you, right? Um, obviously, the further you, down you go into people focused on, you know, truly being in aware of your category in a buying cycle, that's where the sales enablement, that's where the product marketing, that's where a lot of the more direct response type of marketing tactics come in play. And those insights, both from call to actions, offers, and messaging in general can really benefit from that type of deep customer research and, and focusing on the pains there. Because we talked earlier about like, focusing on pleasure versus focusing on pain, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think when it comes to focusing on pleasure, this is about the emotional priming. It could be a little bit more abstract. It could really be about trying to evoke a certain type of feeling um, to the market. But when it comes to people who are actually looking to solve for a pain, it has to be very direct and it has to feel when they read something or see something like you're talking personally to them, right? Definitely. That makes so much sense. And I think like, I love the, I love the idea of like the, like it can fuel like a lot of that top of funnel testing, that experimentation. I think that makes like loads of sense. And I think just to, I suppose just to pivot slightly and just to round up on like the whole idea of, of kind of like speaking to customers, testing out these, these findings. Um, I've been thinking a lot recently about the measurement aspect of it so for example if we are going to glean these insights and we're going to test them I think like sometimes um we're so good because there's so much data and tech stacks are quite bloated often in a lot of companies and um, there's a lot of access to a lot of data it's very tempting to start reporting on these findings these um ideas or these tests like almost weekly and sometimes I feel like we get so hung up on like we've learned this we're going to test it and now we're going to report back on it in such a granular way that again it doesn't mean anything because we're not evoking like any trends we're not we're not identifying any trends because we're reporting on it so regularly so i guess the question is if you're you're running these types of tests like off the back of these like customer interviews and you're saying this is a great idea to inspire some top of funnel content or a top of funnel initiative. How long do you give that before you say, yes, this has been successful or this hasn't? I know it's like, it's not the easiest question, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love the question. I, you know, and, and in many ways, the answer really depends on like what your goals are. Right. So like, again, if you're, if your goal, if you approach customer research in the mindset of being like a journalist and your job is to uncover truth, then the ultimate measurement of that truth is seeing over a period of time, is that still the truth or was it just a hypothesis or was it an anecdote that, did, that has not actually been confirmed over three, six, 12 months of mm. very regular patterns, right? 
So, I mean, that, that to me is sort of like the baseline, especially at the top of the funnel. Um, I really believe that an obsession with measurement gets in the way at times of doing what's right by the customer, right? right. So um, you can, if you can go back to, because in the jobs to be done framework, you know, products change, markets change, but in many ways, like certain pains that a, a, a person experiences in their job doesn't, right? So like a chef is still going to try, is still going to have to manage a kitchen, no matter, no matter what tools they use, how many people they have on staff, how many sous chefs, right? Their core job is still to manage a kitchen to deliver quality meals for their patrons in a timely manner, right? Um, so the job itself doesn't change. If you feel like you haven't identified a consistent understanding across a wide range of people that you talk to around their job to be done, then it's time to go back to the drawing board and refine or maybe alter the questions to see how you can get closer to their truth. But, you know, if you're looking at like click-through rates, if you're looking at like engagement, traffic, I mean, there's so many other variables, right? Like very powerful creative, um, really compelling and persuasive copywriting, seasonality, channels, all of those things then start interfering with the metrics and, you know, maybe diluting the ultimate sentiment, which is like, I'm here to uncover truth. Now, of course, as a demand generation marketer, your job is to deliver results, but I'd almost separate those two things to a certain extent. It's like, you really want to make sure that um, you truly understand and empathize what your customers are experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis. And yes, a byproduct of that could very well be much stronger messaging you know, maybe you start seeing, um, depending on the type of product you have, like in our case, we have a horizontal product, right? So we actually work in a lot of different industries and we support numerous job functions, but are we resonating more with like our proposals use case versus maybe our agreements or very light contract management use cases? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Maybe we could do a lot more to uncover the pains um, of those, those individuals that use Pandadoc for those reasons, right? So I think some of the research can also guide you in terms of having better alignment and positioning within certain segments of, of the market that you're focusing on. Um, and especially if you hear things very consistently, it could be a very good indicator that there's like a gold mine of opportunity there for you. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, gosh, I think again, it's like we're all guilty of, uh, especially if we're if we're sort of selling products, services that can be applicable to a range of like industries, a range of personas, it's it, you, you can be guilty of like just trying to be all things to all people. And I think um, this conversation has definitely been a reminder of that, like the empathy element, right? So really just like thinking about the customer from from their perspective, like not yours, um, I think. Yeah. Certainly. Gosh. <laughs> it's, it's also, you know, in, in brand, we, we do, you know, we can measure brand association, which I like to do every six to 12 months. So there's brand awareness. Have you heard of cognizant, right? That's just awareness. But to me, awareness is, it's fine, but it's not really getting to the root of what I'm trying to uncover from a brand perspective. I want 
the name cognism to be associated in a certain way to solve a very particular problem. And over the course of time, you could actually survey your market when you kind of put out, you know, which of these companies does X, right? Do they, does that align with Cognism? Do people then start understanding that Cognism is the leading solution provider in blank, right? Like that's where you want to kind of see yourself in a longer time horizon in a way, you know, because I don't want to dodge the question about measurement. Measurement's incre- incredibly important, but that's how I think about the effectiveness of how we position the brand, the company in association with a specific problem or problems that we're trying to solve for. Absolutely. And it makes so much like makes so much sense. Um, and I am conscious that we could talk for hours because this has been so great. It's been this is great. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we need a part two. I think what did we say? We need a part two on the power of saying no. I think. Yes. Oh, my God. I'm here for that. <laughs> it's definitely. Well, thank you so much um, for taking the time. It's been such an insightful chat. Um, I guess like one, we can do a wrap up. I always like to do a wrap up question, I suppose. Um, usually we say, what would you tell marketers to stop, start and continue? But I think my question for you is more like, if you're, if marketers are finding themselves in a situation where maybe the customer centricity isn't being felt from the top down, like what is it that they could do themselves just to start like, making moves in the right direction to get that buy-in whether it's like the conducting the customer interviews like what, what would your advice be I guess if someone was stuck not not being able to kind of like get that buy-in you know I think um it's a really it's a great question because at the end of the day you know um nobody likes a bad Yelp review nobody likes a bad Google review um you know especially when you go to business leaders like the company's CEO or founder. You know, I think the one method that we've been able to do very successfully is, is make it very transparent and visible where we're failing on our promise to the market mm-hmm. and to our customer base, right? And the only way you can really know that is if you're actively engaging and having those conversations. Now, you might not be able to do it at scale initially if you don't have the budget, if you don't have the buy-in from leadership, but there are numerous ways where, um, you know, you can still extract, even if you're just doing a case study interview, like that's all you're trying to do, right? That's like part of your standard business practice. Guess yeah. what? You're still having one-to-one interactions with your customers. Take the last five, 10 minutes of that conversation and try to go a little bit deeper and use that as an opportunity to do some customer research. Record that conversation. If you hear something that is really interesting, if you start developing some patterns there, bring that to your leadership, bring that to your CEO, especially if you're in a smaller organization and make it very visible and transparent that I think we could do better here for our customers. I think we could do a better job serving them. And remember like revenue is really a byproduct of delivering on a promise, right? So every CEO wants to get more revenue, wants to see their business growing, of course, but what are the variables that are going to impact that? And it, they all should be centered around the customer and truly giving them a phenomenal experience from first touch to post sales all the way through. That was like the great advice and the most perfect like snippet and the most perfect ending. <laughs> it was wonderful. Um, no, yeah, I hear you. Um, completely agree. 
Well, thank you so much. Um, this has been super insightful and we'll have to do a part two because I still have more questions. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait. Oh my gosh. There's so many other things I want to talk about, but yes, for the, for another conversation. For another conversation, but thank you so much. And I hope you have a great day. Thank you, Fran. You as well. See you later.